0: Well, you can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. We've been studying this great prophecy, and we find ourselves now in chapter 11, about the halfway point here, moving along. And um, I was finding it hard to really know how to review the context here, but if you've been following along with us, we are. In a prophecy of the end times, we are looking at what John records for us, a vision that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ in the last days of his life as he was exiled on the island of Patmos. He was given hope in this prophecy that God would win in the end, and he surely does, Where we are in this book and in this particular letter, we're in a section now where John has, he's been receiving, he's been inundated with a number of visions that no doubt would have exhausted him, it would have exhausted any of us, and he is now receiving a bit of a respite, if you remember from last time, beginning of chapter 10 He's 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 receiving a little bit of a respite, an interlude, so to speak, from these visions of God's future judgment that come as waves upon waves upon the earth. Judgment that began with birth pangs back in chapter six. Our family is familiar with that these days, by the way. (laughs) It began with these eschatological birth pains of the end. Chapter 6, as Christ began to open the seven seals on the scroll that he took from the Father's hand back in chapter 5, you remember, he was the one to have authority to unfold all that God had in store for the earth. He's in control. And as those seals were broken, we got to the sixth seal. And in between the sixth and seventh seal, we saw. An interlude, our first interlude, we were introduced then to, after the breaking of the seventh seal, seven more trumpet judgments in chapter nine, as the judgments keep coming, horrific supernatural future judgments upon the unbelieving world from the throne of God and from the wrath of the Lamb, but still, even then, back in chapter 9, with the trumpet judgments, at least the first six, only partially was the earth destroyed and judged. And finally, bringing us up to speed here last time, Pastor Danny walked us through the second interlude of sorts in chapter 10 that occurs between this sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet which seems to be a pattern in between the sixth and the seventh is this interlude before the last trumpet is blown as you'll see at the end of this chapter chapter 11 verse 15 we'll see the last trumpet is blown ushering in then these final seven judgments this last wave of bold judgments are then introduced We won't get there tonight, but we do pick up the beginning of chapter 11 this evening. We'll only finish the interlude that began in chapter 10, Um, so tonight our plan, as you can see up there, is to cover the first 14 verses of chapter 11. We will walk you right up into the edge of the final trumpet, which is to be blown, and really. From here on out, you could think think of it in these terms, from here on out, the end is here. From here on out, you'll notice in the coming weeks that the language is very much final. With the last trumpet, as we'll see next time, come the last wave of judgments. And if you just stick your finger here but flip over very quickly to chapter 15... Verse 1, notice with me for a moment that with that last trumpet blast and the ushering in the last wave of seven bold judgments, there is no interlude. There's no more interlude. And notice verse 1 of chapter 15, John actually describes those bold judgments as the last. Notice, because in them the wrath of God is finished done this is the beginning of the end we will walk right up to the edge tonight so so we are in the last real interlude before the last few judgments to come that will complete god's wrath upon the earth and there is finality to everything from here on out this is the last hour this is the beginning of the end As we often say, or sometimes say, figuratively, the door of the ark is quickly closing. And at some point, there will be a a point of no return. So the question that faces us tonight on the cusp of the last hour is, is there any grace left for those who remain at this point in God's unfolding of judgment? Is there any grace left for those who remain on the earth by the time you get here to chapter 11? And I believe John is given the answer here to that question in our passage tonight. So let's look at it. And here's your outline for this evening. If you just want a simple outline, we'll... We'll see two glimmers of grace in the last hour. The people of the last hour, the verses one and two, and prophets of the last hour. God, in this final gesture, is so gracious. But look with me first at the people last hour. Notice verses 1 and 2. At this point, John has been, as you remember from last time, instructed at the end of chapter 10 to continue in his prophetic activity. And you remember from the previous chapter, perhaps last time, that he was told that this prophetic task would be both sweet and bitter. It would be both encouraging and frightening, both joyful and sorrowful. His message that he was about to be given, would have both of those elements in it. And that is exactly what we see. With this renewed command then to prophesy again, what's interesting is that instead of being given words to speak, notice chapter 11, verse 1. John is first given, instead of words to speak, he's given an object lesson to perform. Notice verse 1, then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. What is going on here? What is going on here? Well, notice the text says that John is given a measuring rod, like a staff. This is the object lesson, and and prophets were often um, told by God to perform what they were about to prophesy in an illustration of the message that they were to give. John is given something likely. that that resembled the hollow stalk of a reed-like plant that grew in the Jordan Valley at the time of his writing. It was lightweight and rigid enough usually to use as an ancient tape measure. (laughs) It didn't roll up or anything, but. but it could grow anywhere between 9 to 15 feet long, and that is what they used to measure things back then. And with it, notice he's instructed to measure the temple Of God and the altar and those who worship in it. But, did you notice? He's also told specifically not to measure something. To leave out, or literally, the verb is actually to cast out, to throw out the court which is outside the temple and not to measure it. John is given these two commands. The first question we need to answer is, what does this mean? What does measuring and not measuring represent or signify? Well, for for starters, we know that this is probably symbolic in nature because John, notice, doesn't come back with specific numbers or figures to report in the following verses. And, And furthermore, he's not just told, did you notice, to measure. The temple and the altar, but also he's told to measure those who worship in the temple, which is unusual to say the least. You know, I just was picturing him going about like, like we do with our kids sometimes on the doorposts, right? As they grow, you kind of, <laughs> with everybody, putting the stick next to each worshiper. No, that's not, it's not necessarily what he's describing here. This is symbolic. This measuring is symbolic of something. But more than that, when you survey the rest of the scriptures for other prophetic illustrations of measuring, particularly even those in prophecy, there are some really helpful passages that begin to surface. And we don't have time to get into them. You can write them down for further study. But most helpful, perhaps, is Zechariah chapter 2. And the last eight chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 40 through 48, where the prophetic act, you just have to take my word for it here, the prophetic act of measuring in those contexts was symbolic of God setting aside, delineating, highlighting, marking out a certain people or a certain place for protection, preservation, and salvation. In fact, in, in Zechariah chapter 2, it's Jerusalem that's being measured, that God is promising one day to restore. In Ezekiel 40 through 48, it, it's his, it's it's the same here, it's his it's his temple. In other words, you could say this that measuring is God's way here of specifically to the prophets, highlighting what he was, marking out what it was that he was promising to restore and rebuild someday. That's what John was to do by his measuring. It was as if God were walking out the lines of his future possession and property. Do you all know what homesteading is? <laughs> Maybe some of you, it's walking off, the, marking off the boundaries of his future new Jerusalem. Just listen to one example of this. Zechariah, again, chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. my house will be built in it. Listen, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem so so in both zechariah's and ezekiel 's prophecies, measuring represented god's future promise to his people israel That is what that is what John is picking up that is what John is building upon here. In his revelation, that if you keep searching the Old Testament, measuring's not always marking out something for good. It, it could also, you, you we would also come across negative passages of measuring in other prophetic passages, like Isaiah 28 verse 17, Amos 7 verses 7 through 9, where the measuring line or plumb line—maybe you heard that term before—was used by prophets to also mark out something for God to judge and to destroy. So we put those pieces together. Clearly, whatever's meant by measuring whether good or bad, salvation or judgment, restoration or condemnation, whatever that is, it depends on the context of our passage, right? In fact, sometimes it's both good and bad. It's making a distinction between something set apart for good and then something set apart for bad. For instance, you just write down 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, and David defeated Moab. The text says he measured out two groups of people for two different purposes. He measured them with the line, listen to this, making them lie down on the ground, and he measured two lines to put the death and one full line to keep alive. So there it's both, for good and for bad, for salvation and for judgment. So what does, all of that to to say, what does it mean here? What what is John being told here to, to do? What is he representing here? What does measuring in our context mean then? Well, notice how in our passage, God then is telling John to make a distinction by marking out and measuring one group and not another. In fact, Casting out the other. So, so I, I think both are happening here. One for good, one for bad. One for salvation, one for judgment. One group, God is measuring for, to restore, while the other group, God is casting out for condemnation and judgment. One group, God is promising here will he will draw to himself in those last days... In the last hour. While well, the other group, God, will harden in those days. So the next natural question is, well, who, who are these two groups of people? What, who, who, who are they? Who did the, the, the first group, the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it represent? And who does the court, which is outside the temple, represent? There are a host of different answers to this. <laughs> but it seems to me that the contrast, notice, that John is drawing here is between Jew and Gentile. Why can we say that? Notice how within his measurements are all Jewish elements of the temple along with its worshippers, and then outside those measurements is the court of the Gentiles which has been given to the nations. You see that the, the it's even more obvious in the original because the word here that for temple is is actually better translated sanctuary and refers to the inner part of the temple court where only Jews were allowed to enter and worship which included the brazen altar that's listed here along with those worshippers where sacrifices were offered there's actually another word a more generic word for temple that John could have used but he doesn't here, which would have been a normal way of referring to the entire temple complex as a whole. But here he uses this term for sanctuary, the inner court. And that is then put in contrast with the place that John calls, notice, the court which is outside of the temple, the court of the Gentiles where God-fearing non-Jews were allowed then to come and worship back then. Following me so far? Notice how the text is even explicit about why John is to leave out the court which is outside. Notice God says, because it has been given to the nations. That word for nations, by the way, is literally ethnos. It's it's the, the usual New Testament term for Gentiles, and I think you could translate that. So it seems then that the contrast here is clearly between that which is Jewish and that which is Gentile. So, what is John saying? That in the last hour, John is being told God is going to make a distinction, he's going to make a demarcation, he's going to mark out by his measuring. His own chosen nation, Israel, from the rest of the nations of the world in that last day, at that future time. Beloved, in those last days, God will once again, this is so sweet, keep his promises to his people. Promises that were we read of in Zechariah chapter 2, promises that stretch all the way back to the Old Testament, to his nation. God will once again keep those prophetic promises to Israel. He will mark them out in that last hour for good. He will distinguish them from the peoples, from the nations and from the Gentiles, and once again draw them to himself. It's amazing. But notice also at the end of verse 2, what the result will be of this prophetic act of measuring and distinguishing between Jews and everyone else. It would lead to these Gentile nations, did you notice, treading underfoot the holy city for 42 months. In other words, God also declares this is not going to be an easy salvation. It's is not going to be an easy final rescue mission future result of this marking out this distinction prophesied by John here will be great hostility. Great hostility towards the holy city of Jerusalem for a period of 42 months. Now if you do the math there, that's three and a half years. It's three and a half years. which of course we would, if you've been paying attention, we would say, is the great tribulation period here that we are in, that John is speaking of. And so this holy city we know is Jerusalem because in verse 8, notice it's identified there as the great city where also the Lord was crucified. But in those last days then, God will once again, think about this, keep his promise to his nation Israel and set his love upon them once more for their good. This is the people of the last hour. What a glimmer of grace in the midst of mass destruction, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of him judging the entire earth. Before the ark is closed off completely, he said "There's, there's one more thing for me to do. And once again, he extends his mercy to a people who have for years been stubborn and disobedient and hard-hearted. What a grace. What a glimmer of grace. God will use this final hour to bring in a final people Malachi chapter 3 would prophesy this. About this period called the Great Tribulation, Malachi would write, he will, God will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, and as in former years. What a mercy from God. How in the last hour he will fulfill these promises. He will be gracious once again and save a number out of the nation of Israel. That is the people of the last hour. a glimmer of hope. But how will he do it? How is he going to do it? What How will he carry out this rescue mission? Well, notice John tells us in the rest of these verses, verses 3 through 14, he will do it through two prophets of the last hour. And notice first the description of these prophets in verses 3 through 6. And I will grant authority, he says, to my witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. By the way, if you do the math, 30 days in a month, this is three and a half years. Once again, 42 months. Notice how John then describes these prophets of the last hour. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth, every plague, as often as they desire. Now, God, it becomes pretty evident now, God is... Speaking directly to John and giving him these this vision these these instructions, if we weren't sure about who was talking back in verse one, now it becomes rather obvious God is consistently the one who gives throughout revelation, and he 's certainly the one only the one who can give divine authority to whom he calls my witnesses here so We're introduced here to God's witnesses. God's two witnesses. Why two? Well, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. All throughout the scriptures, beginning back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, on the evidence or two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. It's always been two or three. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then, even in our practice of church discipline today, you know this well, this is carried through. In God's instructions to us in Matthew 18, verse 16, that if a sinning brother doesn't listen to you after a private confrontation, Jesus tells us as the church, Hey, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed, quoting Deuteronomy. So that's why, too. These you could see them as God's final witnesses, God's last. Prophets. These are God's witnesses against those who dwell on the earth. And they will confirm the matter of unrepentance. Again, there's a finality to this, isn't there? You get the sense that this is indeed the last chance. This is a a final plea. This is a final sermon. A final warning the bridge is out. But notice notice how in this description that we find in verses three through six that the identity of these two witnesses is not explicitly given to us, though we wish it would have been. <laughs> Many have tried to figure out who these two people are. I think it's John MacArthur and Sinclair Ferguson just kidding uh some some have thought it's Enoch or Elijah because both men were translated into heaven without dying other others have, have conjectured that maybe it's Moses and Elijah because those men they show up on the mount tri- transfiguration of Jesus there's some mystery surrounding both of their deaths you know Elijah was taken up Moses don't know he knows where he was buried and and both of those really were, were, we're prophets who performed the kinds of miracles that are all described here in verse 6. So it makes sense, but the, the reality is none of those can we say for certain. All of those are speculations and inconclusive. The text just doesn't tell us. If God wanted us to know who they were, I think he would have told us. That's not the point here, but what we do know from the text, notice, is the purpose of their ministry. They will prophesy. their messengers, their prophets. In fact, they're called prophets in verse 10. And the days of their ministry in verse 6 are called the days of their prophesying. And so they are here to announce something. They are here to prophesy. So what 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 will be the content of their message seems that Their message will include some kind of call to repentance since they'll be, notice verse 3, clothed in sackcloth. That's the garb of repentance, lament. And it also seems that they will prophesy warning of God's judgment. It won't be a comfortable, easy message. Notice in verse 10, since they tormented those who dwell in the earth with their prophesying. So it's not, a, it's not going to be a popular message. It's not going to be a, your best life now message. Likely it will include an announcement of the wrath to come. But notice specifically in verse 4, and I think this gives us the most information on it. It's really interesting. Notice verse 4 says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And you say, how does that help us understand what their message of, is, is going to be like? Well, well, because, as John often does, this is this is a reference to the Old Testament. And if you didn't know that, you'd be confused. But this imagery is drawn... It's a clear reference back to Zechariah chapter 4, where the prophet Zechariah, in his context, is given a prophetic vision of a lampstand and two olive trees by it. And when Zechariah asks in that context, hey, what are these? In chapter 4, verse 11, he's told by an angel, these are the two anointed ones, listen to the language, who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. Same language here. So again, we don't have time to show you this, but if you study that context in that passage, you'll find that the two olive trees, the two anointed ones that Zechariah is referring to, are Joshua, the high priest, of Israel at that time, and a man by the name of Zerubbabel, who was governor of Judah at that time, maybe that sounds familiar, and both of those men were used, in Zechariah's context, by God, after Israel had returned from Babylonia and exile, you remember, they had to rebuild some things, didn't they? Both of those men, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel, were used by God in those days to stir up the people... To rebuild the temple so that God would be honored once more in Jerusalem. If you want to read more about that, just write down Haggai chapter 1 and Ezra chapters 5 and 6. You can read about that there. But think about that. That's what's so helpful about this reference here. John says here, this is then what the ministry of these two witnesses will be like. That's helpful. God is going to use the ministry, the prophesying ministry of these two witnesses to do the same kind of thing, to restore worship to the nation of Israel, God's people. Those people whom he's marked out in verses 1 and 2. These witnesses will preach to the nation, the wayward nation of Israel in those days. And God will use the preaching as we will see. What a grace. This is a reference then to a ministry of revival among the Jews. These two witnesses will stir up the hearts of those in Israel to true worship that will be part of their message. And I don't think it's an old, I don't think this Old Testament reference to the ministry of Zerubbabel and Joshua rebuilding the temple is a coincidence either since John has been told to measure out the temple even though at the time of his writing after 70 AD the temple lies in ruins. So it implies it will be rebuilt. And God will use these two witnesses to restore his people. But notice also in this description of these witnesses, the duration of their ministry. Verse 3 says, for 1260 days. Now again, as we've noted earlier, this happens to be the same three and a half year period. It's the same duration of verse 2, just given in different quantities And not only that; it's the same period of time that will come up again, just a preview of things to come, in the next two chapters in a few different ways, all speaking of the same period here, though, in my opinion, notice, just look forward, chapter 12, verse 6, we'll see again the number 1,260 days again. Chapter 12, verse 14, you'll read a time and times and half a time, which is, how Daniel refers to this period in his prophecy, a time being one year, times being two years, and half a time being half a year, three and a half years once again. And both of those instances in chapter 12 refer to this period of time where a woman who is cared for by God will, will be cared for by God in the wilderness, be chased out into the wilderness. And one more Preview of things to come, just look at chapter 13, verse 5, and see again 42 months mentioned there in which John says authority is given to the beast. So put all of those things together. It's the same period. It's the same period of time. The duration of the ministry then of these two prophets, it's not going to be a fun season. It's not going to be a fun three and a half years. The ministry of these prophets will last these three and a half years, yes, but it will be the three and a half years during what has been called the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist will come to power and trample underfoot the city of Jerusalem, thereby causing God's people to flee into the wilderness. If you put all those references together, it will be a ministry in difficult times, difficult season. The most difficult. And yet, what a grace. That in that last hour, once more God will call his people and they will finally listen. We see also that for these treacherous times, these two witnesses will be given God's authority and power to fulfill their ministry. Notice verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6, we see the authority and power to fulfill their ministry. Notice verse 5, God is said to kill the enemies of these prophets by fire, which is a common Old Testament sign of divine judgment on those who directly oppose his appointed servants. In fact, Numbers 16 When Moses the prophet was opposed by the sons of Korah, you remember after the earth swallowed most of their camp, the text says fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Same thing happened with Elijah, and again, this is why something, it's Moses and Elijah, but 2 Kings chapter 1, Elijah the prophet called down fire from heaven to consume 100 of Ahaziah's men. Remember and, and and even you know in the New Testament you think James and John had a category for this kind of judgment because in Luke nine they they actually asked Jesus if if they if if he wanted them to call down fire from heaven and consume these people whom they thought were against them so this is judgment. This is a judgment of God on anyone who would oppose these two prophets. And notice verse 6, not only are these two witnesses given the authority and power to punish the wicked men directly in this way. Just like the prophets of old, verse 6 tells us they're given the power to perform the same kind of miracles and act plagues upon the earth that the prophets had. John writes, they have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. Language here indicates that for the entire duration of their prophetic ministry, three and a half years, there will be no rain. It just happens to be the same period of time that God withheld rain from Israel during the prophet Elijah's ministry against Ahab read about that in James 5 verse 17 but and again notice not just the ability to shut up the skies but power verse 6 over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague it's reminiscent of what God did through Moses his prophet in the land of Egypt but did you notice the biggest difference what's the difference between what these prophets are given in the authority and power of God to enact these judgments and then the old testament prophets the biggest difference is that these two witnesses they seem to have an even more direct access to this authority given to them notice the fire that judges their enemies doesn't come down from heaven it comes from their mouth and they seem to be able to strike their plagues at will The text says, as often as they desire, in other words, their testimony is so directly tied to the Lord's testimony that their authority and power are are direct demonstrations of his authority and power. That is how powerful and how closely linked to God these two prophets are and will be in that day. Whatever judgment they choose to carry out is rightly attributed to God judging through them. And in those days, it will be undeniable that those who oppose them will be opposing God himself. Which, which, is, which is what makes what comes next just absolutely shocking. Notice, second, the opposition that these two prophets will face in the last hour. Verses 7 through 10. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. And will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented to those who dwell on the earth. In spite of their direct authority from God, in spite of the grace that they are to those in last hour, there are going to be a majority of people here who will oppose them John says I want to make just two observations here about this opposition in this section first notice notice that God is sovereign still over this opposition and it's such a comfort verse 7 when they would finished their testimony then the beast comes And kills them. John tells us here that God will not allow these two witnesses to be touched until their task is done. Think about that. God won't let anything come against them until they have finished the last word. And once their appointed time has come, then and only then, John says, once their testimony has been fulfilled, John then sees the beast emerge from the abyss to war with these two witnesses, and he will overcome them and eventually kill them. God is still sovereign over this. God is sovereign over opposition, the opposition you and I would face as well. You might be wondering, who's this beast? Well, it's the first time we're really introduced to him here. He'll come, I think, 36 or so more times later. More information will be given about him in chapter 13, chapter 17 specifically. But for now, it's enough to say that he's, that he's likely, he's the Antichrist who comes to power during the tribulation period and leads eventually leads in chapter 16 an army to wage war against Christ in the battle of Armageddon. We know he's not Satan because notice chapter 12, verse 9. Satan is depicted as the dragon and the serpent of old, not this beast. And if you fast forward again, chapter 13, verse 2, John in his vision will distinguish between this beast and the dragon, who is clearly Satan. So he's not Satan, but 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 in that later chapter, we'll read that the beast is given the dragon's power and his throne and great authority. So Although it's not Satan himself, we know the beast here is one who will carry out Satan's will on earth during these last days. And and, and Revelation 13.5 tells us that this beast will be given a temporary authority over the earth for the same period of time, like we said earlier, that these two witnesses will have their ministry, 42 months. And yet... you fast forward to revelation 17 verse 17 we will be reminded there and it's good to be reminded of now that even this temporary reign listen this evil reign of the antichrist that will come is ultimately under god's sovereign control to execute his purpose until the words of god will be fulfilled i love that listen This is the sovereignty of God over all satanic opposition to his people. Even in the face, you think about it, even in the face of the greatest evil that will ever rule this planet, when the Antichrist comes to power, the Bible doesn't mince any words here. God is still in control. It's his purpose that's being worked out. It's his purpose witnesses that are untouchable until he's done with them. And even then, their martyrdom is a fulfillment of his will, not Satan's. Beloved Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, none of those evil dictators even touch what this Antichrist's rule will look like in those last days. And yet, Revelation declares to us here that even his evil reign will will be according to the will of God and subjected to the sovereignty of God. So Christian, as George Whitfield once famously said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. If the Lord is for us, who could be against us? What can man do to us? But notice not just that God is sovereign. Notice not just his sovereignty over this opposition. Notice the intensity of man in opposition to God here. The intensity of man's hatred for God at this point is so great. It will be demonstrated in their unbelievable response to the murder of these two witnesses. There will be no remorse, there will be no shame, there will be no repentance, there will be no turning from their wicked ways for most people here on earth, for the nations, for those who dwell on the earth. Only callousness and animosity towards God is recorded here. The language here indicates that that after some kind of gruesome public execution with no regard for any kind of decency or censorship, This unbelieving mob will have such disdain for these two men that they will not allow their corpses to be buried or put in a tomb. And just think about it. Back back in John's day, for those who were executed even by crucifixion, at least their bodies were hung and left out to, to rot outside the city walls. But notice here, in that day, in, those, in that last hour, John records that the city of Jerusalem, the great city of Jerusalem where Christ was crucified, will have been so overrun by evil, under the rule of the beast, the Antichrist, that it will be spiritually equivalent to Sodom and Egypt and they will let these men rot in their streets, in their cities. In a final attempt to dishonor and disgrace and desecrate these men, even after their deaths, the God-hating world will leave their bodies in the open streets of Jerusalem as a spectacle. This is shocking. The, the, the text indicates people from, notice, all over the world, those from peoples, and tribes, and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies unashamedly for three and a half days. You think, how can that be? Well... I mean, we know of social media today, don't we? It's going to be all over the place. On every feed. These two dead bodies. And it won't bother them. The intensity of this opposition. Maybe you remember Luke chapter 11, verse 17. Lazarus said, Already been in the tomb for four days when Jesus got there to raise him, and maybe you've heard before. I mean that—that's a significant period of time. I mean, not even. But but th- so think about this: three and a half days is comparable. Not not even the rotten stench and putrid decay of the maimed, bloodied corpses will turn the eyes of these the unbelieving world away from looking and mocking these two dead witnesses. This is the intensity of their hatred for those who brought God's message to them. God extends a glimmer of grace and they spit in his face. This is an even intensified version of what I'm reminded of in the words of Stephen right before he was stoned to death by the Jews. Remember in Acts chapter 7. He says, "You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are going just as your father, you're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who'd previously announced the coming of the righteous one." betrayers and murderers you have now become but Stephen was speaking to the Jews there this is the unbelieving world now and in a miracle of miracles the Jews as we'll see in a moment will be softened and the world hardened in their intensity and opposition towards God Notice, not only will this intensity be demonstrated in what they do with these dead bodies, they will make a national holiday out of the death of these two witnesses. Think about that. John records here, they will rejoice and celebrate and send gifts to one another like we do at Christmas. In commemoration of the murder of these two prophets, God's witnesses. This is mankind in its maddest state of hard-heartedness towards God. All restraint has been removed at this point. God has given these people over. He's cast them out permanently, and they will hate him for it. This is how they respond to his extension of grace. And so he will cast them out. But notice, their holiday is going to be cut abruptly short. God will have the last word. Notice, brings us lastly to the vindication of these prophets. Verses 11 through 13. But after the three and a half days, breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet. <laughs> and great fear fell upon those who were watching them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, "Come up here." Then they went in. Then they went up into the cloud or into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Can you imagine? I mean, how utterly terrified God's enemies will be in that day. At the end of three and a half days, John says here God will resurrect these two witnesses in the sight of all those who've been gloating over their death. Can you imagine? Just like he breathed life into the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, he will raise these two prophets on their feet in the middle of the street in broad daylight for everyone to see while they're while they're while their feeds are scrolling. And not only that, he will then, he will then take them up into heaven. He will receive them as his own, perhaps saying to them, well done, good and faithful servants, my witnesses, just as he did with Christ in Acts chapter 1 verse 9, at his ascension, as a sign of, his vindication, his victory, God will do the same here for these two witnesses. And he will do this in front of all of his watching enemies. It's amazing. And as soon as as this two-person rapture is done... Notice John records, in that very hour, there will be a great earthquake that will partially destroy Jerusalem and at the same time kill 7,000 people. Literally, the the text says 7,000 names of men were killed, probably implying that these were prominent men High-ranking maybe officials and in the Antichrist's government, perhaps, whatever the case is, God puts an exclamation point on this. Notice in verse 13, by far the most thrilling result recorded here comes. at the end of verse 13, and the rest were terrified. And gave glory to the God of heaven. What does that mean? Well, all throughout Revelation, giving glory to God is, is the language of true worship. I, I think this is a revival of the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem who were not killed by the earthquake. This is the The restoration here of the Jewish people that God promised and marked out in verses 1 and 2. This is a revival. The salvation of the nation of Israel in the last hour. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 Right, I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me, whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That's what will happen in those days. In that day, in the last hour, God will be so very gracious. through people of the last hour through prophets of the last hour and notice finally verse 14 the second woe is past behold the third woe is coming quickly the end is near it is here and as we'll see next time with the sounding of the seventh trumpet heaven will declare it is over it is over just amazing you think of God's grace and giving giving the two prophets here at the end you know it's true what Spurgeon once famously said it's illustrated here for us in our text the same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay doesn't it you think that message that the prophets preached that grace that God extended it it brought it finally brought the rest of Israel to repentance, and yet the rest of the world is hardened. And from here on out, we'll see that harden, hardening only yet harder, and opposition to God and his message and his judgment will only grow. But what a grace from God in the last hour here to his people. Father, we are just so encouraged by this prophecy, Lord, that you, you will be once again merciful to your people, Israel. And indeed, Lord, you have shown mercy to us. Lord, we who exist now in this day, it is not yet this last hour. Salvation is still offered. Salvation is offered this very moment. Now is the day. Today is the day of salvation. You extend it to those who would come to you meekly and humbly and soften their hearts to your call of repentance and faith. Father, we pray that if there's any here who don't know you this moment, they wouldn't wait until the last hour perhaps that they would, they would turn to you now and know that you're a gracious God who loves to save but that one day that window is closing one day that a hand that as we've heard before those hands that hold back your just judgment and at the same time beckon sinners to come both of those will drop and there will be no more chances to repent. So, Father, cause us to live. Draw those who are yours, whom you've marked out from eternity past, to yourself. Even this, t- even this night, we pray. In Christ's name.